Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is Stan Grant, the International Affairs Analyst with the ABC, but well known for his wide-ranging career in, in broadcasting, television, in writing, and also as an advocate. Stan, welcome to the program. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Are you a supporter of liberalism? Yeah, I think if you have to put your flag in the ground somewhere, ideologically and politically, liberalism is not a bad place to plant it. You know, I think I think what liberalism offers us, and, and keeping in mind, of course, um, there is no one liberalism. Um, it is... It is a house with many rooms. That's something, but, we've, been, that's something we've been discovering in these podcasts. Yeah, but, but broadly, I think what liberalism offers us is something unique in, in humanity, and that is the ability to govern over diversity. The modern world has, is, you know, has been about shrinking our world in many respects. We live alongside people that historically we did not live alongside. And to make space for our differences, our faiths, our beliefs, our politics, without killing each other, we need some form of a guiding principle. And I think liberalism, in in its capacity to create shared rights and the willingness to surrender other rights in order to have the greater right to live in peace, offers us, I think, a roadmap to, to living peacefully and governing over diversity. And I think that's what really attracts me to the idea. Always been that view, or, or, or have you come to it? How have I come to it? Yeah, I mean, have you, yes, have you always thought that or have you come to it? Uh, oh, look, I, I, I think I've always been of that sort of um, bent. It's always been my persuasion, I think. I've always been someone who's thought very long and hard about these questions. Um, you know, I've deeply read in philosophy and political ideas, um, and and I think I've always had that. I think I have a an innate love of of freedom and a really um, instinctive uh, rejection of people who want to impose their limits on my freedom. Um, particularly without my consent. And I think that is difficult, you know. So I've probably innately and instinctively more liberal, but I've honed that with reading and travel and experience that has sharpened, I think, those instincts for for that type of political ideology. But I've, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something I wrestle with. I mean, liberalism is not an easy fit. It's also something that is not passive. It requires, you know, it's a it's a fighting faith liberalism. You need to to fight for it, and you need to fight with it and against it. Um, you're constantly grappling with the idea of liberalism, and that's what attracts me to it. That it is it is a, a place that I can wrestle with all of those questions and try to see if those broad sort of innate and instinctive ideas I have hold up to a, a rigorous assessment and a challenge of, of of how those beliefs fit in the world that we find ourselves. I'm going to come in just a moment to, I think, the big question and what's attract, why one reason why I'm to talk to you about 
liberalism and demands or issues of First Nations people. Just pause that for a second before we get mm. to it because that's going to be our main conversation, I suspect. What do you see some of the threats and issues today in liberalism? Is it, is it, a, is it a movement that you think which is gaining or losing place in the world and our society? I think it's changing. I think it's certainly under threat and challenge. Uh, I think liberalism carries within it the germ of its own destruction in that if you take it to its nth degree, then freedom leads to a nihilism even and to a meaninglessness and to a rampant individualism that destroys the fabric of communities. Liberalism, if you take it to its nth degree, can take you to a place even beyond truth. Um, if you are truly free to believe what you want to believe, then you can disbelieve the facts as well. And I think that's that's where we've landed. I think liberalism struggle, its its capacity to govern over diversity can also be the rock upon which it perishes in that it rubs up against this very deep desire that we have as human beings for some form of identity and specific identity. I think for liberalism to work, it's predicated on a neutrality that asks us to leave our history and our identities at the door when we enter the, the public space. And I don't know that that is feasible. And I think in the, in the world that we live in, where history in particular and history that is fused with identity is really challenging what, you know, the, the capacity for liberalism to deliver on that promise to govern over diversity. I think liberalism has a problem with history. It struggles to deal with historical legacy because of its emphasis on neutrality. It mm -hmm. can overlook the fact that, that human beings are deeply produced by their history, that we are products of our history. Uh, and, and I think liberalism sort of tends to favour the more privileged uh, the people who make up the rules, if you like, the people who wrote the original rules of liberalism, and that's probably broadly speaking, you know, white Europeans. Uh, whereas people who enter liberalism, as I have had to do from another space, with all of my history weighing on it and pushing against liberalism, then I think liberalism often struggles to deal with the legacy of that very fraught history because of its because it, because it is often predicated on a, on a neutrality or an idea of progress that demands that we leave history somewhere in the past. I wrestle with that. I wrestle with that all the time. That's interesting to me. But I think that it poses real challenges to liberalism. And I think the rise of authoritarianism we've seen in our world and the democratic recession that the world is going through, I think are linked very closely to history, a sense of grievance, and deep, deep-seated desire for some form of identity. And that challenges the very fundamentals of a liberal society. Would that mean that liberalism, in a sense, is uh, incomplete? Uh, it, it, needs, it, needs, um, it, it needs to deal with its view of humanity is incomplete, its anthropology is incomplete. It needs morality. It, and uh, people, some of the great founders of the liberal movement in various forms often said this, that... Uh, I know people like um, uh, Adam Smith and yeah. if you can count Burke as a liberal, I'm not sure you can, but they, they agreed. And you're saying not just ethics, not just morality, but also history. Yeah. Both, both have, you can't have liberalism as a complete one-size-fits-all philosophy. No, I, I, I don't think you can. 
um, not as it's currently constructed, but that's not to say that we can't increase the size to fit all. And I think that's part of the renovation project of liberalism. And I think that's frankly what is really interesting to me about liberalism is it allows itself that's it, to be self, self-correcting. It allows for that level of debate to challenge those precepts and to see if you can enlarge the idea to deal with people who don't normally fit within that umbrella of political liberalism. And a lot of the really fascinating work has been done by post-colonial writers, um, African-American writers who have come from someplace outside classical sort of liberalism but have tried to fashion a home for themselves within it and to test the limits of liberalism to see if it's able to hold. Now, of course, the danger with that is that you may change what liberalism is. I don't think, you know, the risk is in renovating the house, you completely change the house. I mean, I've um, been... And, and I, think, I think it's renovating the house while remaining within the structures <laughs> of the house itself. Or rebuilding the boat without sinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. M- many people often regard identity and identity politics and so forth as an enemy of, of freedom. At least that's the common... Yeah. view. Do you hold that view? Or, or? Oh, I do. Most definitely I do. I don't know that you can have identity as it is politically constructed and freedom. I don't think that those things necessarily go together um, because, of, because of the constraints of identity, because what identity demands, because of the group nature of identity that can be oppressive to the, to the, the idea of what it is to be an individual in the world. Um, yeah, it's, it's not it's not identity. I, we all have identities yeah. and we all desire identities, but we should be able to live with our identities in all of their guises and they are multiple and they are layered and they are contextual and they, you know, depending on where you are at any particular time, a part of who you are is going to be more, more relevant I mean, you know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a friend, I'm a football fan, I'm a, I'm a journalist, I'm a writer, I'm a film producer, I'm an Indigenous person, I've lived in other parts of the world, speak other languages. All of those things make up who I am. The, sort of, the type of identity I think that is antithetical to liberalism is, the sol- is what Amartya Sen, the Indian economist and oh, philosopher, yeah. called the solitarist identity. And that's the identity that shrinks our world, essentializes us. It, 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 it forms around a rigid idea of being that doesn't allow for what Hegel would have seen or other philosophers would have seen as a becoming. I like the idea of becoming, of a process of change um, and embracing that change rather than a rigid idea of being. Now, when you take that rigid, solitarist identity and that inevitably leads us to an us and a them, and you infuse that with the historical grievance and vengeance, well, then you set the world on fire, and this is the world that I've reported on. This is why Xi Jinping always tells the Chinese people to never forget the 100 years of humiliation. This is why Vladimir Putin tells the Russian people that the, that the collapse of the Soviet empire was the great catastrophe of the 20th century and how the West humiliated them. It's why Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey talks about the fall of the Ottoman Empire. It's, it's, what, it's what fuels ISIS and al-Qaeda and the far right. It's why Donald Trump talks about making America great again 
all of these things are an appeal to what Mark Lilla, the American political writer, once called the shipwrecked mind. And the shipwrecked mind doesn't see the future. It just sees the debris of the past constantly washing past them. And I think that type of identity is dangerous and it is most definitely antithetical to liberalism. It's, it's dangerous when it when it becomes a one identity. You, you describe yourself with all these different titles. Yeah. It's when you focus on the one and that and that 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 becomes the one thing about you. Well, and 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 then it is weaponized. That's weaponized. the key, you see. Now, it, I, I must, and I, it is I, usually I, weaponized with a with a grievance narrative that yes, fuels okay. a hatred in the us and them sort of tribalism. And you know, this is what we see in a, in our world far too often. Well, it, um, I, know, I know I know you're a supporter of the rabbit, and and, and that's certainly a difficult identity with a lot of grievance. But we'll pass that one. It's by. a I tribe think. as well. I'm happy to be a member <laughs> of that tribe. I go to the very big issue. Um, you, you've written in a, in a very interesting piece in the conversation back in May about the Uru statement, and it's, it's yeah. a voice a voice to the um, to the Parliament. It what should have been a high water mark of Australian liberalism became a victim of Australian liberalism. You're describing the reaction of the government in, in yeah. rejecting it almost preemptively. Yeah, you say this: Can a liberal democracy meet the demands of a First Nations people? Given what yeah. you just said, Stan Grant, about the dangers of of, 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 a, of a reified, even aggressive identity, and now you speak. I'm interested in your, your point of view as a, as an openly advocate of Indigenous rights. You identify yeah. as an Indigenous man. How does it work? Well, you How know, I, I think Indigenous rights work. I I don't think Indigenous rights need to be based around some rigidity of identity and political tribalism. Uh, I think it can fit within a very capacious idea of liberalism. I mean, if I take the Uluru Statement from the heart as an example, I mean, what greater pledge is there to Australian liberalism than to say that, that, that the place of Indigenous people and that the political futures of Indigenous people can sit within an Australian constitution? That is the, 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 the foundation document of our liberal political de- democracy. I think, I think one of the challenges is that it's appeared to place too much weight on our liberalism. Our liberalism could not bear the weight of the Uluru Statement. It wasn't a fault with the Uluru Statement, I would argue. It was a fault with the inability of our liberalism to withstand that weight. And there are deep historical uh, reasons for this. I think Australian liberalism has been very narrowly defined and predicated on broadly an assimilation that may work in terms of migrant community who willingly come to this country to assimilate into a broader Australian culture while also informing that culture with their own traditions, which has been a beautiful thing in Australia. Um, But for Aboriginal people, it's more difficult because, of course, liberalism was built on top of Aboriginal peoples and nations and the political structures that already existed here. So I think it was quite remarkable that Aboriginal people were saying, we believe that, that that Australian liberalism can hold a place for us. It failed because our politics could not embrace that bigger idea of liberalism. Now, the reason it did, and I think this is really critical, the reason it did was that fundamentally there was a belief that within our constitution, within our liberalism, there could not be space for the differentiated acknowledgement of other peoples. In a sense, they were saying there could be two classes of Australians. 
You can either be Australian and we're all in this together and we can have all of our cultural yes, backgrounds yes. and differences, but we can't have Aboriginal people acknowledged in our constitution and, and maintain that commitment to being all Australian. I think that was short-sighted and I think it showed a lack of faith in our liberalism itself. But Uluru put such a weight on our liberalism, it couldn't hold it. Let me, uh, I'm Rob Forsyth. This is a liberalism in question. My guest today is, is uh, Stan Grant, and we're discussing the very interesting question of the relationship of liberalism and the particular issue of Indigenous people's rights. Um, Stan, what you said makes very good sense to me because I often hear my liberal friends, not I don't mean politically liberal, I mean in outlook, make yes. exactly that point, that, that a country that has two different kinds recognises in principle two different kinds of citizens is somehow um, deeply flawed. And yet that, in effect, is what we have already, was pointed out, in, in, in the yes. Land Rights Act, Land Rights Act. Yes. Well, well, uh, well our, our, our High Court enshrined that. I mean, when you acknowledge in the Mabo decision that Aboriginal rights to land preceded and 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 survived colonisation, that I think, you know, you've already established within the framework of Australian law that there are these differences in the way that we are politically and legally represented. Now, it's, unless it's, someone wants to suggest to me that the High Court is somehow an enemy of Australian liberalism, I think I think what what the High Court did with Mabo, and it's done you know in, in other decisions as well. But what it did with Mabo essentially was to open up that space for Aboriginal people to live within Australian liberalism. You know there are Aboriginal people here, Aboriginal people who identify as I do with a very strong and de very deep heritage. It doesn't mean I don't also embrace my Irish heritage. It doesn't mean I'm not Australian. Uh, it doesn't mean that I can't embrace liberalism, but I do enter that from a different tradition, and I don't think it hurts Australia uh, in any way to embrace that. I don't think that the, that the House of Australian Liberalism collapses because 3% of the population whom the High Court already acknowledges have pre-existing status in this country is actually enshrined in our constitution. In fact, it's the opposite. It allows for Australians to enter into that heritage with a fuller and deeper understanding of what it is to be Australian. Surely that makes our liberalism stronger and negates the idea of a tribalised us and them, of a Amartya Sen-style solitarist identity. I saw it as, as an antidote to identity politics, not at all um, a reinforcement of because it. Because it's, it's, often, it's often framed that way. Of all those identities, you Irish and so forth background, we, we don't want a country where all those different identities have their own special place independently of each other, but, he, but but there's something particular about Indigenous rights. Yeah. Which Now, what is it about Indigenous rights that, that makes them so unique? Well, I think, I think it's an acknowledgement fundamentally that, you know, our history shows us that this was a land that was colonised and Indigenous peoples were dispossessed. And it is unquestionable that the, the plight of Aboriginal people today is shaped by that that history. I mean, there are one group of people who are who die 10 years younger and are the most imprisoned and most impoverished people in the country. It's no accident. It is a product of that history. Now we can't be, we can't allow our liberalism to be historically blind. 
Um, I think that is never going to resolve these, these issues. In fact, it's going to have the opposite effect, and it's already having that to my dismay, and that is that it, it poisons other Aboriginal people against the idea of liberalism, and I, and I hate to see that uh, because, I, as I've said before, I think it is our best, our, the best capacity to govern over diversity. It, it also asks something of us, and I think this is, this is something that's missing from the debate. It isn't, isn't just the load isn't put on Australia, so to speak. It asks Aboriginal people too to bring those grievances and that historical, the legacy of that history to the table and to lighten that load, to relinquish some of that and to embrace fully our place in this country as Australians. Indigenous people, yes, and Australians, deeply Australian. And I think, I think it asks something of us, very much like Nelson Mandela and, and Desmond Tutu asked something of black Africans in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, what they were saying is bring your history here and let it go. Don't allow it to poison you. Don't allow that to be the, 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 you know, the poison in the blood of your identity. Free yourself from that and join in a more capacious idea of what it is to be a South African. And I think that's what the Uluru Statement asks of us too. So, you know, it is it is a coming together. It is a setting aside and it is a re-recommitting ourselves to the precepts of liberalism that in all other respects can work for all of us. And it is not just about Aboriginal people. And, again, that's a failure to of imagination to understand the, the, the potential of this. It is also an opportunity for Australia and Australian liberalism to achieve a legitimacy that is probably still lacking and to allow Australians to embrace an Australian identity rooted in 60,000-plus years of history, not just 200 years. Can I pick up? This is a very important point. Um, it seems to me one of the reasons for the, the feeling of threat that, that, that non-Indigenous Australians feel and liberal Australians feel is that the, the assertion of Indigenous rights is, in effect, a challenge to the very legitimacy of the nation and of the, of the state because the nation is founded upon mm. uh, an original sin of dispossession. Mm. And um, there are two ways forward here. One is to deny that, which is one way, or to feel that somehow it can never be sold and therefore has to be sort of either a source of endless grievance on one hand or suppressed anxiety on the other, um, do you think that Indigenous rights do, does challenge the legitimacy of the whole liberal state of Australia? I don't think it's Indigenous rights that challenge the legitimacy. I think it's the failure of the state to properly acknowledge those rights and to deal with the legacy of history that challenges the legitimacy of the state. I think it's the other way around. Okay. okay. Um, it's not those rights that exist in and of themselves Liberalism, liberal nations have been able to incorporate those rights around the world. New Zealand has, and that's a liberal nation. The United States, which we've, we've held up as a beacon of democracy, it is the Enlightenment nation. It is a product of the Enlightenment. It is an idea of liberty. Liberalism is at the heart of the idea of American democracy, and it has no problem acknowledging the sovereign, much more than Australia, much more than was being asked in the Uluru Statement, but the fundamental sovereign rights of Native Americans. I don't think liberalism falls because of that, but it is peculiar to Australia 
that we feel our, our liberalism can't do that. And I think that's where the question of legitimacy is raised, not in the existence of those rights, which, inter, which international law acknowledges, which other nations acknowledge and incorporate. It is in Australia's liberalism as it's constituted in our politics to be able to, to live with that negotiate that and resolve those things and incorporate those rights into our society, that raises the questions of legitimacy. What you're saying makes me think that the Uru statement has come too early, if I may put it. Perhaps. In one level, it's too late, I understand. I'm not, I'm not to, in mm. that I rarely ever hear anybody speaking, as you're speaking to, to us here on the... Uh, no, they the don't. In, ...in question podcast. Here no, the they don't. And uh, I hear things being put in ways that strike me as either if only Indigenous people would behave, would get on board with, with the program of the rest of us, then all their problems would pass, or if only um, that could never happen, the irreducibly racist nature of the country has doomed us. I, I, it seems to me that the, the, in many cases the narrative is not really one of hope. Mm. Well, unless, I, I, unless there is this serious thinking, not just about Indigenous rights, but about liberalism. And so mm. I, I would ask you... Are, are the white anti-racists part of your problem as well? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. To, to the extent that, that a lot of that movement is predicated on a rejection of liberalism, yes. yes. I, I think there is a bit of a reflexive attitude among people of that particular political persuasion, um, you know, to say that, that liberalism is the problem. Liberalism is part of the problem. Liberalism came in the cargo of slavery and colonisation, invasion and dispossession and genocide around the world. That's true. Liberalism was part of the logic of the enslavement of African-Americans, but it was also deeply embedded in the emancipation movement that led to the, the freeing of, of slaves. And America fought a war over it amongst themselves. Yes, yes. Um, I, I think that's, to me, what liberalism represents. Pascal Bruckner, the French philosopher and writer once said that, that Western civilization, I suppose, you know, you could use liberalism broadly there. Western civilization yes. is a jailer, but it's a jailer that slips you the key, that it holds within it the, the, the emancipatory ideas as well as the ideas that can justify empire and colonization. It's contradictory. It's difficult. It's frustrating. As I said before, that's why I'm really attracted to other writers, the African-American writers who've approached liberalism in the right spirit and said, how do we make it work without losing what liberalism is? Tommy Shelby's a great example. He's an African-American philosopher. He talks about a thin and thick blackness. And he says a, a thick black nationalist idea um, would, would reject the idea of America and liberalism, but a thinness means that you can hold to those identities that are in common and those things that are important to you but you can also engage with the world beyond you and you can ask if American liberalism is, is capable of holding your dreams too. And I suppose that's the, the Martin Luther King Jr. approach to, um, to, to liberalism. So, look, look it, 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 is, it is really, really difficult. It's, it's heavy. Did you, did you but, think it's, so? but it's a project that's worth undertaking in my view. Um, I, I don't believe, look, I don't know what's going to happen in this country, but I don't believe that the Uranus statement has been rejected Completely, I think I think there is a lot more going on than just when some people said things. I think there's still a lot going on. In fact, if it if it was in a sense to be enacted, would 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 that make a really big difference, or would that just mean another set of complaints down the line? 
would something like that change significantly the language, uh, the, the debate, and the way in which Australian liberalism work? Is that is this is, one, is this? I'm asking really, is this a genuine key moment or merely one of many many uh, ambit claims? It, it is both. It it is a key moment, but it is also a key that unlocks another door that leads to another room and another door. <laughs> and and I, and I think that's that's the beauty of liberalism. I don't think it's ever complete. Um, that's the beauty of it. Otherwise, you know, liberalism is the antidote to the utopian visions of fascism or, 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 or Marxism. You know, utopian ideas slam the door shut. That's what we are. That's all we'll ever be. I think what liberalism does is it opens other rooms and other doors in the house of liberalism. And I'm and I, I, I like, I mean, that's great. A nation should never be finished. This is why the founding fathers of Australia allowed for referenda to actually change our constitution because they knew that you were not drawing a line in the on the page a nation would evolve it would change women didn't have the vote um, we had a white australia policy um, you know all of these things change and i think to expect that the uluru statement would draw a line through this history and that would be the end of it would never hear of it again um, would also rob us of our future it is but part can, of a process, I think, and I think can, we need to embrace the process. Can you tell me also, and this is important, as a non-Indigenous person asking this question, why is it so important? What, what? It, it's not the end of the line, but why is it such a significant step forward in the development of Australian liberalism, in your view? I think it gives voice to the sense of powerlessness that Aboriginal people feel. I think it deals with the legacy of that history that I know that as much as I grapple with it and try to try to live beyond it, it still has a deep, a very heavy weight on me, a deep hold on me. Um, I, 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 think it's, I think it's an emancipatory project. I think it's a project that reaches across to other people and brings us together. So I think for all of those things, it's terrific. I think symbolically it has a power, but I think beyond that, the ability for Indigenous people, and remember this as well, I think this is another failing of the way this was received, Aboriginal rights already exist. What doesn't exist is for Aboriginal people to be able to have enough input into how policy is enacted based on those rights. Um, the rights are already there. To have more input into policy would lead, hopefully, to better outcomes. Now, it's not a veto over policy. It never was. It was never a third chamber of the House. That was mischievous. Um, but it was, it, it, it gives a voice. And I think and I think that cannot be a bad thing. In fact, it could also mean that, in, a, in an interesting way, Indigenous people become more responsible for the successes and the failures of policy. Well, I think what it does is it means that Australian politics is more is more responsibility for the success and the failures. We all get to share in that equally because Aboriginal people's voices are being heard. We're not going to always have the right solutions. My God, the Australian government doesn't. Um, no. No, you know, we're, no, we're, one, no one ever does. But if we're involved in the process, I think it's good for all. Yes, yeah, so what I mean is it means instead of it's easy to, 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 to so some of the problems on the ground, I believe, are very, very serious and they appear at times intractable. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing to just blame the government or them or blame systematic racism. But when you become inside and you're facing the problem together, the whole approach changes. You, you don't blame each other anymore. You have to then take responsibility together. That strikes me as a possible beneficial outcome of yeah. a voice to, to Parliament. It might yeah, reduce it, the it should, the, the, it the should be. 
It should Systemic be. binary, yes. Yeah, it should be. There's so much more, so much more we could talk about. I've, I deeply appreciate your time, Stan. Oh, it's been a pleasure. If, if I keep running this for the future, I might get back to Stan too. Yeah. <laughs> this has been another podcast of Liberalism in Question from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been the independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Check out the links on the website to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening. Thank you.